Will you turn now in your Bibles, first of all, to Psalm 110, a very clearly messianic psalm. I'll read Psalm 110 in its entirety. It's a brief psalm. Before turning to our sermon text today, which is from Titus chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Psalm 110, which if you're using the Pew Bible, is on uh, page 443. This similar to the second psalm, which we've already considered and sung, is very clearly messianic, as we see. It is a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array. From the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of, your wrath, of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And now we come to Paul's letter to Titus, the second chapter. Verses 6 to 8. Paul writes to Titus, who is serving there on the island of Crete. Likewise urge the young men to be sensible. In all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified sound in speech which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your Spirit now, that these words which we have now read would take root in our hearts, that they would bear fruit upward in our lives for the glory of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his kingdom. In his name we pray. Amen. Whatever our situation in life may be, whatever our situation, whatever our station in life, Christians do well not to become careless of the spiritual battles that we find ourselves in every day. 
Nor should we neglect the real power that Christ has put into our hands to shame and shut the mouth of the adversary. If only we will. If only we will. The power to silence the adversary is a power we have not of the flesh, not of ourselves. It is a moral power. It is a grace that the Holy Spirit confers on the Christian. And he transforms you from whatever it was you once were into someone who is spiritually fresh and strong and vital and new through faith in Christ. Now, very often it's a quiet, agonizingly slow and piecemeal transformation of your character. But the fact that you can't see the flower opening, the fact that you can't see the fruit ripening, doesn't mean it isn't happening. It is happening in the man or woman possessed of the Holy Spirit. And this transformation begins with the renewal of your mind, your intellect, as you steep yourself in sound biblical doctrine. It's a transformation divinely powerful. Divinely powerful for the destruction of the intellectual fortresses that are arrayed against the gospel and whoever carries the gospel. It is a transformation that when witnessed destroys intellectual speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. The adversary simply runs out of theories, runs out of ideas to try to explain this dramatic and permanent change in the Christian. Now, I accept the fact that there might be a few among you today who doubt whether you really have any real adversaries. And at one superficial level, I rather envy you if you entertain such doubts, because it may mean that it's been a while since they made your life painful, since they made your life perplexing. You might be experiencing a temporary lull in the battle. You might be experiencing a a divinely given opportunity to convalesce from the wounds the enemies inflicted on your soul or on your family or on your good name. Our Heavenly Father, after all, gives us no more than we can handle before he ministers to us by those we might or might not recognize as his angels. Or, it could be, on the other hand, that the enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ simply haven't gotten their hands on you yet. Maybe they haven't taken notice of you because you haven't yet demonstrated conspicuous gallantry for the gospel. Maybe up until today you've just been happy to go along with the flow of those around you. You haven't stood out. You haven't taken a stand anywhere and said to the devil, thus far and no farther. 
The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, may hang on your trophy wall, but it's never seen battle. It's never drawn blood. And if that's the case, if that's why you're doubting whether you have adversaries, I really don't envy you at all. Because Jesus said, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Older Christians often bear some deep and lasting scars, not all of which you can see from the outside. The point is, we have enemies. And the work of the gospel goes on in the crucible of their daily opposition. It was certainly so on the island of Crete, as Paul reminds Titus so many times in this short letter. In chapter 1, verse 9, Paul writes of the need to refute those who contradict sound doctrine. Refute them. Take a stand. Show them where they're wrong. And it's not going to be easy because there are no neutral minds on the battlefield. None. There's no one out there just perched on the knife edge just waiting to be convinced. Their philosophical bias, not to mention the whole culture in which they and we swim, it all goes the other direction. In the very next verse, Paul says what those people are like. He calls them rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially, not exclusively, but especially those of the circumcision. And he says they are many. Many. The opposition isn't the exception. They tend to be the rule. Paul agrees in verse 13 with that old Cretan prophet who says, the whole island of Crete is filled with liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Men and women defiled and unbelieving as he describes them in verse 15. In chapter 2, verse 5, he points to the risk of dishonoring the word of God by our own disobedience. And in today's passage, he points to the opportunity we have to put the enemy to shame, to silence him, if we will. The early verses of chapter 2 here show us how much our personal conduct matters to God. It's not just the words of our mouth, it's the life we live. Sound biblical doctrine changes things, doesn't it? Because it's not just teaching that teaches as teachers teach. This is training as soldiers and athletes train. This doctrine in the hands of the Holy Spirit transforms spiritually dead, hopelessly 
lost, old sinners, male and female, it turns them into real men and real women. People alive and radiant and consecrated to God, combined with the power of living example, sound doctrine transforms naturally foolish young women into consecrated young women fit for the temple of Almighty God, the church, as we saw last week. We read today in Psalm 110 how the Lord Jehovah said to his son, Sit here at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Father, God the Father, putting his hand upon his son's hand, as it were, stretches forth the strong scepter of his beloved son from Zion to the ends of the earth, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Rule. Do you wonder about the connection that I'm trying to make between Psalm 110 and Titus chapter 2? Here's how Christ rules in the midst of his enemies. From Zion to the ends of the earth until he comes again. Here's how he rules. Here's how he puts his enemies and ours to shame. Here's how he silences them during this present evil age. He reigns in the midst of his enemies by means of sound doctrine, gently but firmly guiding his children, reigning us in from our natural ways, so that we walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the darkness and futility of our minds. Another psalm, the 32nd, puts it this way. God speaking to his people, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you, And that's sound biblical doctrine, isn't it? Instruction, teaching, counsel. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check, otherwise they'll not come near to you. Don't be like them. The wild horses and mules among whom you and I live and work need the constant hard enforcement of external rules and regulations to keep their behavior in check. They need police to pull them over on Saturday nights to keep from killing people with their bad judgment. They need to sign user agreements at their workplaces consenting to electronic monitoring to keep them from visiting pornographic websites or wasting company time shopping online. They go through their whole lives, cradle to grave, needing these external restraints to check their natural folly from the outside. But the maturing Christian, God himself teaches us. He instructs us. 
He keeps his eye on us. And through the happy habits of familiarity with God, we natural mavericks who once ran to the far end of the field at the sound of him, we now draw near. We come trotting on over at the sound of his voice. We are ready for the saddle. We're knowing that whatever the master wants of us, wherever he wants to take us, it won't be burdensome to us. When sound doctrine has free course in a man or woman's life, their belief and their behavior agree. And that agreement is a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's a genuine testimony. And it's how Christ reigns in the midst of his enemies. In today's passage, Paul promotes the principal virtue of young manhood, into which broad category, demographically, Titus himself seems to fall. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. Now, this word sensible has to do with the mind. As a man thinks, so he is. Now, this word's been translated sober-minded. It's been translated of sound mind. Let younger men think soundly and soberly about the world around them and their responsibilities in it. And when we put it this way, it begins to take on a great deal of relevance to the age in which we live, doesn't it? Think of the young men that you know. Turn on your TV any hour of the day. The postmodern media can't seem to hold a video camera still on someone for more than a half second for fear, I suppose, that whoever is watching it is going to grow bored with the sight of a human face. Or hearing someone actually form a complete sentence, construct a complete thought, much less trying to understand the context in which he says it. What we get today are little fragmentary sound bites. So whether it's through commercial ads, whether it's through music videos or so-called reality shows, young people are bombarded with this jerky stream of weird fragmentary images and sounds that strung all together don't really mean anything at all. It's just so much sound and fury signifying nothing. There's no organizing principle to what we see and hear. There is no story being told. There is no propositional truth being stated. There's no line of reasoning that we can pull out of what we see on TV, for instance. Just bombardment with sound and visual images to fill the senses. But you, Titus, urge the young man to be sensible, to be of sound mind. As a younger man yourself, and to Paul, that seems to mean something under the age of 40 or so, as a young man yourself, 
You're in a position to teach them in the very most promising way there is to teach, by the power of your own personal example. The congruence, the agreement of Christian doctrine and Christian ethic, the agreement of word and deed. You be of sound and sober mind. Now this soundness of mind or sobriety has at least four important features that are worth mentioning. First of all, soundness of mind commends the Christian faith. It commends the Christian faith to others. Because although soundness of mind begins as just that, it begins as a matter of the mind and the renewing effect doctrine has on it, the fact is that a sound, biblically informed mind always breaks out in some beautiful, beautiful ways. Exemplary or good deeds, a good and well-regulated life. Isn't this how we know whether a tree is worth keeping or not? What kind of fruit does it produce? Not long after Mary Lou and I were married, I sold the home and land I had out in the countryside east of San Antonio. But during the years I lived there, I discovered that among dozens of wonderful pecan trees, I also had two old peach trees. The first summer I lived there, both of these small, old peach trees produced small but very good fruit. That was the first year. The second summer, only one of them produced any fruit, or any leaves, for that matter. The other, in fact, looked quite dead. Guess how many peach trees I had the third summer? One less than I did before. When a young man sinks his taproot deep into the good word of God, it's just as we read in the very first psalm. He'll be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and in whatever he does he prospers. A city set on a hill can't be hidden, can it? A sound thinking mind in a young man, especially viewed against the backdrop of this generation's persistent irrationality, a sound mind commends the faith that produces such minds. Second, soundness of mind comprehends all of life. It comprehends all of life. And so it's a worldview we're talking about. It's not about a faith that's confined to a file drawer or closet of your life. The punctuation at the end of verse 6 here can go either of two ways. It can go either as it is in the NASB or as I prefer it for readability's sake. Specifically, I believe Paul's saying to Titus, likewise, urge the younger men to be sensible in all things. The first words of verse 7 actually belonging with verse 6 doesn't change the meaning appreciably and it reads more naturally. 
urge the young men to be sensible in all things. And here's the point. We need to train our young men to think not of Christ as fitting neatly into a little one-hour-a-week compartment of life we call religion. We need to cultivate young men who believe and so act on the fact, make their decisions on the basis of the fact that Christ is King of Kings, that he is the Lord of Lords. Young men with an expansive view of the kingdom and the power and the glory of God. Young men who, having studied these things, know that there's nothing in all our doctrine and practice that falls outside his sovereign right to govern. Young men who show good biblical sense not only in Sunday school, but in their biology labs and their basketball courts, their use of the computer and the use of their talents, the way they spend their time and the way they treat their little sisters. Young men who know their Friday nights belong to the Lord just as much as their Sunday mornings do. Sound doctrine produces sound minds that evaluate all things and harness them to the glory of God. Third, this soundness of mind conforms to sound doctrine. It conforms to sound doctrine. How important it is that we get this order down right. Because many very smart but unconverted minds tend to get it backwards. Sound minds don't take the inspired word of God and then whittle it down to their liking. They don't take the glory of heaven-sent Bible doctrine and then twist it and contort it and lop it down and fill it in to fit their little theological ideas and hobby horses, whatever they may be. History is littered with well-known examples of men. From King Jehoiakim at the time of the exile to Thomas Jefferson to Muhammad to Joseph Smith, men who without any warrant beyond their own literary or theological preferences propose either to add to or subtract from the word of God. No, sensible, sober-minded men take the word of God exactly as it is and conform their thinking to it. Sensible, sober-minded men take even the passages that no one wants. Imprecatory psalms, for instance, like Psalm 137. The dreadful historical accounts like Judges chapter 19 and the entire book of Leviticus and any other part of God's word that men find problematic to them, sound sober minds determined to learn what there is to be learned from them. They submit themselves to the teaching and find themselves wiser for it. If there's any cutting to do, if there's any adding to do, we do it strictly on the basis of solid textual evidence. Not just because I want to do it, 
The psalmist in Psalm 119 put it best. (coughs) How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Finally, soundness of mind commands the respect of the adversary. It commands the respect of the adversary. And that's the whole point, isn't it? Let all our young men, all men, all women, be of sound mind in all things for this very reason. Exemplary deeds, spilling as they do from a storehouse of sound, biblically informed mind. These prove an irrefutable point about the God who loved us. And gave himself for it. Dear friends, what words are there that have the power to contradict a beautifully lived life? What can the enemy say against it? The integrity that brings word and deed together into one harmonious Christian testimony speaks louder and more eloquently than any fool who says in his heart, there is no God. After all, it's not that bare opinion standing alone in a social vacuum that proves those men and women to be fools. It's that anyone could make such a statement in the face of all the overwhelming moral evidence to the contrary the evidence of God's Holy Spirit at work among his people. So if we're not sure whether or not there's a God, then we do very well to keep our mouths shut and our eyes open. Observe. Learn. Look at the plain evidence, evidence supplied by the might and power of the Holy Spirit as he conforms our minds and our words and our deeds to his. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The father says to the son, rule in the midst of your enemies. What do you say? What does your manner of life say? Let us each so live that faced with the atheist, faced with the secular humanist, faced with the mocker and the scoffer, faced with the hostile or condescending family member, we can throw down the gauntlet on this point at least and say, my life's an open book. Read it. Examine it. Examine me. See for yourself whether these things I preach and teach and live in Christ Jesus are so. Dear friends, through soundness of mind, irreproachability of speech, and charity indeed, let us finally put to shame and silence the opponent of Jesus Christ and the enemy of our souls. 
give him nothing bad to say about us. The debates between Christians and atheists these days often focus on what's called the intelligent design of the universe. I began following the dialogue, and I hope that you will too, but friends, nothing so drives home an argument on intelligent design as the living example of the intelligent Christian. Who argues for it? In our debates, in our daily fight as soldiers of the cross, let us never lose sight of the goal to win for Christ not only the argument, but the opponent. He who wins arguments may be smart, but he who wins souls is wise. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great gift of the Holy Spirit that you've given to the church. We thank you for the pardon of our past sins, our present sins, our future sins, and we thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit to work within us mightily, not merely to teach us words, not only merely to teach us doctrine, but to apply it, to live for Christ, to live as the salt of the earth, the light of the world, to live as those who were bought with a price to serve the Holy One. We all fall short. We ask, O Lord, that you would bless our endeavors and keep spurring us on by grace for the glory of our King, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.